This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Today is actually a very special Sunday for us. Every year we take one Sunday out of the year and we dedicate it to the cause of the orphan needs all over the world. Uh, And that's, that's today for us. And on a day when many are looking for political hope, we're going to find our hope in a surprising place, in the invitation from the Lord to experience renewal and experience joy by throwing off worthless religion and taking up pure religion. So if you don't mind taking your Bibles out and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, I believe Uh, It's page 586 in the paperback Bible that's either underneath your chair or the chair in front of you if you don't have a Bible. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, and we're only looking at two verses today, verses 26 and verse 27. In order to invite the renewing presence of the Lord Jesus into our hearts in a real deep and meaningful way, we've got to see the difference between what worthless religion is and what pure religion is. And then ask the question, what does that mean for us personally and as a church? So I'm going to go ahead and pray. And uh, let me read it first and then I'll pray and then we will get started here. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence now to illumine scripture to us, reveal your truth to us, come and visit us personally, meet us right here in this room and in every heart of every person hearing this and change us. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's take uh, one at a time here. Let's look at worthless religion and then we'll look at what pure religion is. Let's go to verse 26 where it says worthless religion. And before we get right into those verses, I want to ask the question or or help us ask the question, who is even writing to us? Who is James? Who is this person anyway? And I could have left this off, but I can't just because James, I think, is one of the most interesting characters in the New Testament. And here's why. James, who we're reading today, grew up one of the younger half-brothers of Jesus, Now, if you've ever had a sibling rivalry in your life, you just don't know what it's like to be the younger brother of Jesus. We don't know anything about what it was like for him to grow up in that situation. I say half-brother because they had the same mom, right? But they had different fathers. Jesus, who was born of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, uh, and, and adopted by Joseph, uh, they, so that makes them half-brothers, but still brothers, He was an unbeliever in Jesus as the Messiah, did not believe the claims of Jesus as the Messiah until Jesus personally, after the resurrection, appeared to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, where it says, to James he appeared, and then to all the apostles. He paid a special visit 
to his younger brother, and then he became convinced that my older brother, Jesus, is not just my older brother, he is God himself, and he bowed his heart to him and gave his life to the service of the church and the spread of the gospel, became the leader in the church of Jerusalem, became James the Just in church history. And, 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 and so it's no surprise when you read the book of James, which I would encourage you to read the book of James, he is that friend in the New Testament that does not pull punches. Anybody have a friend like that where you know you're going to get truth. You might not always get it the way you wanted to hear it softly or whatever, but you're going to get truth. And I think it it comes from his background that he was changed from the inside out by the gospel. And he wants everybody to know what the true gospel is and what false gospel is. So let's look at this. Who is he? Who is he addressing? Well, he says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now he's broadening the crowd of who he's talking to, because in verse 119, he's talking to my beloved brothers. So he's clearly talking to the church all throughout this book. But in verse 26, he widens it to not only the church, but the church and anybody else who is listening, specifically anybody who's listening who thinks they are religious thinks he is as a personal opinion. Your personal opinion is I think of myself as a religious person and religious here means one who stands in awe of the gods and is tremendously devout. It, it didn't mean specifically Christian devotion. It just meant devotion broadly, generally. Anybody who stands in awe in front of people, tremendously devout and, and would be viewed as somebody that is religious or would view themselves as somebody that is deeply spiritual. So modern translation, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you identify with some organized religion, or if you are suspicious of any institutional structures but still retain a self-identification as being a spiritual person. And so that's pretty much everybody in this room and pretty much everybody that you know. And in case you want to be sure of that, Pew Research Center of Religious Ethics did a survey recently where they asked people to, get, to tell them and if they considered themselves to be a religious person and in a separate question, whether they consider themselves to be a spiritual person. And all told, about two-thirds of U.S. adults, 65%, describe themselves as religious, either in addition to being spiritual or not. Nearly one in five say they are spiritual but not religious. That's 18%. And about one in six, only one in six, say they are neither religious nor spiritual. So only 15% of the U.S. population would describe themselves neither religious nor spiritual. And this was just a blind survey, so they didn't ask follow-up questions. And I think if you were to ask follow-up questions, uh, you would find even those 15% would say that they retain some self-identification as being spiritual. Because I have never met the person who would not say, in some form or fashion, I am a spiritual person. So who's he talking to? He's talking to everybody in verse 26. He's talking to everybody. Well, if anyone thinks that he is religious, and notice this, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion, his outward devotion is worthless. Now let's just pause there for just one second. 
The implications of what he just said is staggering. It's possible to be a part of an organized religion and for all of your religious excitement, fervor, devotion, and commitment, time, money, and attention, that it has no value before God. It's possible to be involved in a Christian church and you know how to walk in the rhythms, you know how to do the stuff, you know how to do what's necessary to be a part of the community and to do so where other people would say, wow, that's, that's really spiritual, you're a very spiritual person and it'd be worthless. And you can self-identify, you can define your own terms of what it means to be a spiritual person, whether I connect with God when I work out, I connect with God at the lake, I connect with God through work, whatever it is that you connect with God, whereby you would say, but I still retain a self-identity of being a spiritual person for all of your activities and all your devotion, all your head knowledge about that, it could still be before God worthless. So when he says deception in verse 26, he's speaking something that connects with all of us and something that we all need to be warned of and be aware of, that deception is a real thing and we need the word of God to help us make sure that we're not deceived in our activities and in our devotion and our religious activities. And he says, uh, he says this in verse 22, if you look up just a little bit higher there, deception was a big deal with James. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see that word? Same word that he uses in verse 26, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I mean, if you see that happen among a friend or a family member, that's a tragic situation. We would call that some kind of dementia that has taken place. And that's what James says there. He says, hearing God's word and not doing God's word is a kind of deception that works like a tragic dementia where you can't remember the obvious. You can't see what is plain in front of you. Even though other people can see, you can't see And the primary place of deception, what does he say in verse 26? The primary place of deception is revealed in the tongue. So notice what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. That language, bridle his tongue, I mean, not many of us, some of us may have horses and he knows exactly what he's talking about, but not not most of us, I would imagine. Uh, But it's not hard to figure out. To bridle his, bridle his tongue means to do this to yourself, bridle himself. He has self-control over his communication, over his speech and other forms of communication where it's not somebody else bridling him, it's he himself is bridling himself or herself. He uses the same language in chapter three where he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. What he's saying there is that our speech is just one small part of our lives, but it determines a lot about us and it represents and reveals a lot about us and it directs our whole bodies as well. In verse 4, chapter 3, he says, Look at the ships also. So he said, he said Look at the horses, now look at the ships. 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. Anybody see that happening in this election season? He says, oh, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. The influence there of sin coming directly from hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. So he says, listen, every person born into sin has a world of unrighteousness working inside of them, which left to itself is a wildfire influenced by hell itself. It can't get more serious. So a claim today of being a spiritual person is no joking matter. If you claim to be a spiritual person, it must demonstrate an ability to tame what is wild and out of control left by itself. It's like somebody saying, I can tame a lion. Somebody says, you drop me off in the desert, I can tame a lion. You'd say, I need proof. You need to show me proof. You need to show me observable proof. And that's exactly what James is getting at. Christianity is observable. It can be seen. Despite what somebody would say about it not being needed to be seen, he says, oh no, you can see it. You can see it in yourself and you can see it in others. The proof of pure religion is that even though I stumble and fall in my speech and everybody does, there is still a very small even almost invisible power at work to guide my speech to love God and to love my neighbor. So for spirituality to not be worthless, it must demonstrate this supernatural ability to do what no human being can do. And that is tame the tongue and to guide your speech and to say words of love and speak words of grace to God and to the people of God. And so hear this, no supernatural ability, worthless religion. It may have the appearance of godliness according to 2 Timothy 3, 5, but it denies the power. Christianity is a religion of power. Power from the inside coming out through our speech, through our communication, through our love for neighbor, through our worship of God and our service of people. It is observable, not in its perfect form as we will see in heaven, but it's still something that can be seen. So listen, Jesus talks this way, right? Do you remember when he talked about the, the, the parable of the tree? He says, listen, either make a tree good and its fruit good, 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 good
which for me is like an apple tree. Make a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Can't call an orange tree an apple tree. Can't call an apple tree an orange tree. And he says that to a bunch of religiously devout people, the Pharisees. And he calls them snakes. He says, you brood of snakes, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So there has to be a supernatural change right here where something new is springing out. Something new and redemptive and clean and pure is coming through my texts and my, my writing. So where's the power come from? Here's the gospel message. Not from you. Not from me or anybody else on the stage. Not from that real godly person who you really respect highly. The gospel message is that Jesus, listen to this, gave his life for us as a substitute to put his life in us. And his life in us becomes that invisible but vital reality that steers us and guides us home. It becomes the rudder in the boat. It becomes the bridle in the mouth. And without Jesus here today, you might be a wild horse and you might boast in it. Man, I'm wild and free without Jesus. But you're running scared in the dark. And you might be free from a rudder, but listen, man, you are in a boat that is lost at sea, driven around by every wind and wave. And so Jesus offers an invitation to you. He says, come to me. Do you remember, remember that verse? Matthew 10, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my yoke. Upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my bridle is easy, and my burden is light. So it's easy to be deceived, but with Jesus, He becomes the supernatural power in us whereby we can do what verse 27 talks about, and that is pure religion. Pure religion. What is pure religion? What does it mean for Christ to work in us so that we exercise something that's pure in his sight? Well, he says here, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So three ideas right there. It's before God the Father It's visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and it's keeping oneself unstained from the world. So that's not a throwaway phrase, by the way. When he says it's before God the Father, that's a revolutionary concept that for the people of God, especially in this time period, just that mention that God is a Father is radical, and it changes everything about how we think about God. Jesus says that faith in God through him, faith in him, brings the unapproachable God home to us and then he becomes our father. 
And he actually taught his disciples. He says, when you talk to this, this holy God, this Lord of hosts, say to him, our father who is in heaven. Our father being, he, he's approachable. I can know him. I can walk with him. I can share my needs with him. I can say, give us this day our daily bread when I can't even think beyond this day. And I just have so many needs and so many things crashing in around me. He is an approachable God that he is my father, but he is the father who is in heaven. He's holy. He's still the Lord of hosts. He still has more power and, and more holiness than any of us can fathom. So through Christ, he's approachable, and, uh, and that's revolutionary. I've shared this illustration in the past. I read this somewhere where um, one thing about uh, JFK was that I'm a, kind of a JFK guy. I, uh, maybe it's just because I live in Dallas. Maybe one day the curse will be lifted because of what happened to poor JFK. But JFK, uh, for the first time in American history, you saw kids in the White House. Now, why is that such a big deal? Was well, before JFK, you never saw that. You never saw, before Time Life came in and took pictures of kids running around the Oval Office, you know, jumping into dad's lap, talking to him like he's dad, to the most powerful person in the world. You never, you never saw that before. And it just shook the world that here the most powerful person is approaching is being approached by kids. And that's just, a, that's just a small illustration of what it means for us to now be able to approach God the Father. And that's what James is saying here. God is a Father and he can be, he can be approached. But as the Father in heaven, he cannot be compared to any earthly father, real or imagined. You might have a great example of a wonderful father in your life, but you might not. Well, as good as your example is, and ours as poor as your example is, this father is incomparable. In verse 17 of chapter 1, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What's he saying? He says, This, this father is relentless and everlasting in his self-giving love. And every good thing that we enjoy, every beautiful thing, every wonderful thing, anything that we could look back and say, that's beautiful and good and pure, has one source, didn't come from us, it came down from him. And whatever we did with it was a wonderful blessing from him. But it's all from him, from the Father of lights. Even to the point of what Jesus says, making rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's just relentlessly merciful and everlastingly self-giving of himself. And, And here, this God leans in and looks at us. That's what it means. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. In other words, he is looking at us. He's leaning in. He's paying attention to his children. He's looking at us this morning. We are before God the Father here today. He can be trusted. He can be believed. You can ask him to do things that nothing else can can do in your life. He can do. And what's he leaning in to do? He's looking and he's watching. And, and, And here he says... 
uh, as he's looking in, the command is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That, that's the essence of what pure and true religion is. Religion that's not worthless is observable in that it does certain things and it doesn't do other things. The supernatural work in our lives that Jesus does through his spirit is that we stop doing what we naturally want to do. That is, the tongue wants to just go off and just say whatever it wants to say, whenever it wants to say it, and staining the whole body. Well, we stop doing that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Increasingly, as he increases his control, we increasingly stop doing what we naturally want to do. We stop setting off little fires here and there. We learn how to put those fires down by what we Say So we stop doing certain things and we start doing other things. Well, what is that? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This idea of widows and orphans is a kind of a collective phrase of how God looks after the afflicted and marginalized, those who are in society that are pushed to the fray and forgotten about by people. Psalm 68, 5 says that this father is a father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's who our God is. He loves the fatherless and he protects widows. Deuteronomy 10 says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God commands his people, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Do you see those two ideas coming together? Psalm 146 says the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. When God's people were really excited about their assemblies and their worship services and these events that they were putting on for God, but neglecting the widow and the orphan, God has some really strong words. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He said that to the prophet Isaiah. And so that's, it's no surprise that if God looks after the widow, if God looks after the orphan, and he, he's looking at us in love and filling us with his power to do supernatural works, is a little surprised that we should also visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit means to look upon. It doesn't mean just kind of stopping by and giving a high five. It means looking upon, looking after, and to provide help for it's not, it's not fix every issue. It's not fix every crisis in the world. And it's your responsi- responsibility to do that. It's do what you can with what you have. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. Do what you can with what you have. And to look upon those who God is looking upon. Now, if you study the, the theme of widows and orphans and adoption in the Bible, you're going to be surprised by how this 
This theme is carried all the way from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to your seats today. Uh, For instance, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Ruth was a widow. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, was a widow. And redeemed. And through Ruth came the Messiah. Esther, who we studied recently, was adopted by Mordecai. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter, Scripture says. Jesus was adopted by Joseph, who trusted. When when the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Can you think of anybody else, maybe not listed by name, but shows up in the Bible who are adopted? Maybe not listed by name. Maybe their name, Sarah or Michael or John, isn't listed by name in the Bible, but nevertheless is in the Bible, who are today adopted. Maybe even sitting in this room, perhaps. Well, Galatians 5 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now that changes everything. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is adoption. Why we highlight it once a year is because adoption is the message of God's redeeming love and grace that runs throughout the storyline of scripture and changes us. It's changed the church throughout history. This whole idea of looking after people, listen to this. Rodney Stark, historian Rodney Stark says, the the ethic to look after people the way that James is talking about here is how the early church grew from 12 disciples to over 6 million in just a couple of years. Specifically, Christianity's revolutionary treatment of women and the care Christians gave to the suffering. So when the plagues came in to the cities, the Christians would stay and care for their families and the people who were abandoned. It's because of this ethic right here. Because of what Christ has done for us and because we are in Christ and his power is at work in us and he calls us to love those who are Abandoned, we will care for those who are in front of us and we will love those who, who are right here in front of us. Well, let's, let's talk for just a second here about those who are right in front of us. In Sundays past, when we've celebrated Orphan Sunday, we've, we've looked at some of the orphan care needs around the world. There are, it is a crisis. It, it is a crisis. There's millions and millions of children that are in need and, uh, and that we need to pray for and be involved in, in caring for. But today, we're gonna look at the needs right in front of us, okay? Let me just share a few statistics, statistics with you. So there are 410,000 children in foster care in the U.S. 410,000. 
100,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. 25,000 children age out of foster care each year. So that's nationally. In Texas, 30,000 children are in foster care. 7,000 are waiting to be adopted in Texas. And 1,200 children age out of foster care in Texas each year. Let's talk about where we are. Collin County, Dallas, Fort Worth. As of September 2016, there are 3,625 children in foster care. And approximately 1,000 of those are waiting right now to be adopted. That's, that's, uh, that's staggering considering the affluence, isn't it? Over 2,100 children are in kinship placements. This is over and above the number of children in foster care. 155 children are in foster care from Collin County. 228 children are in foster care from Denton County. Now, those are numbers, and numbers are powerful. Numbers tell the story, but they don't tell the whole story. Sometimes we need to see pictures. So let's take a couple of these numbers, just two. Let's look at John up here. So John, there he is. John is nine years old. He is slightly verbal. And as is common with autistic children, has sensory sensitivities. John's caseworker says he is very sweet and he is hard not to fall in love with. And due to his special needs, he will need care into adulthood. So he's one of those numbers. It's John. Um, Here's another one, Veronica. Veronica is 17 years old. She's a high school freshman. She enjoys playing volleyball. Her favorite subject in school is math. Go figure. I didn't think that was anybody's favorite subject, but I suppose it can be. Um, She loves Starbucks. All right. And she loves (laughs) Chick-fil-A. So those are just, those are a couple of, um, those are a couple of kids. So when we say there's 155 children in Collin County, they're kids like that. They're kids like John. They're kids like Veronica. 228 in Denton. Lots of stories like that. And, And brothers and sisters and siblings that are looking to be adopted right now. So let's close by sharing some things as a church we're seeking to do to be obedient to this text in small steps forward of faithfulness. Specifically, how do we reflect our Father in visiting widows and orphans in their distress regarding the needs that are in front of us? See, these statistics are not new to us. We've known about this for several years, but we've just been praying and asking the Lord, Lord, what do we do? How do we take steps of faith forward? We can't solve every issue, nor would we be so foolish to think we could, but we can do something. We can do what we can with what we have. And so what are some things that we can, we can do? Well, just to remind you, we have been doing weekly ministry 
to widows and widowers at Rambling Oaks, which they changed their name to Bethesda Gardens, if I'm correct about that. So that's a weekly service that we do, and that's a, that's a ministry to widows, and that's going to be an expanding ministry in days ahead. And if you're interested in serving with that ministry, please let us know because we want to get you involved in that. We have also been uh, connected with for many years with a pregnancy help ministry called Life Talk. But in addition to that, for a couple of years, we've been taking steps to formalize a new initiative to care for families in the church who are adopting domestically or internationally or serving kids through foster care. And so we are ready to go ahead and move by faith, trusting the Lord, and we have a a new ministry that we are starting, and this ministry is going to be called Families of Hope, which I think we have a slide for the... That There we go. Families of Hope will be led by Fred and Diane Shaw. You guys know the Shaws? And Diane specifically will be the point person for this ministry and is going to be the adoption and foster care coordinator for Grace Church. Adoption and foster care coordinator. You can still call her Diane, but maybe today... Let her know that that you accept this new title that she has. Uh, She's going to serve to represent the church, to to be a liaison of resources for us, and to help the church come alongside families who are adopting or doing foster care so that foster and adoption is not just a family decision, but it's a church-wide coming around of of a family that's adopting or fostering. If you're going to adopt, you're going to foster, praise the Lord for the commitment that, that and, the, and the faith that the Lord's giving to you. But we need a family of church to come alongside you, and that's their heartbeat with this ministry, is that it's a church-wide effort and not just, just one family's effort. So, uh, Secondly, one way that this ministry, Families of Hope, will help families is by knowing what the best resources are What's, what are we, what's available to us and how can we contribute? So we are partnering with an organization led by Bruce Kendrick, many of you know Bruce Kendrick, called Embrace Network. So Embrace Network is an evangelical organization that works to connect resources of churches to serve adoption and foster care families and works to end foster care in Collin County. So we have started a formal partnership with Embrace where we're going to seek to learn from them and other churches and to be a resource ourselves for events, respite events, or training events, or any number of events where we can play a part in, uh, in the needs of, of the city as well. One of those ministries, I have some more things to say, one of those ministries that we learned about through Embrace is a ministry called Second Story. So you'll see the, the uh, logo up there. And what Second Story does is help match foster kids who opt into the program with a church who desires to be an advocate of care for a child in Collin County until they have a place of permanency, whether through a family who's adopted them or six months after aging out of the system. So what that means is that churches are matched with a a child who fully understands and fully opts in to the program of being known by a church and prayed for by a church where we come alongside the foster family and meet appropriate needs of the child as a church. So as a church, we would come alongside uh, a child and their, and their family and their situation and pray for them, care for them. And we would have a team um, 
that would, that would uh, oversee that care and oversight. And so by faith, we've decided we're going to start with one child and pray and care for this child and serve their foster family in the ways that we uh, are, have been set up for us. And once we're matched with this child, boy or girl, uh, we're going to share the child's story with you, whether by video or we'll have the picture, the picture of the child's name up there. And the child can visit, you know, he or she's going to be known by our church, so it's not going to be an odd thing. So it's, it's going to be a wonderful thing. As soon as we have that information, we'll, we're going to let you know about that. Last thing, um, one of the reasons why our Generations Fund is so important is that it goes to helping fund this building as a tool for ministry. So as a next step, we want to invite those in the church who are interested in learning more about foster care and adoption to some events that we have coming up in January. So January the 5th, we have an information meeting here at the church. This is by far, no, by no means a commitment on your part to fostering or adoption. It is just an information meeting to get more information. But you need to come to it if you want to go forward with it. So if you're interested in learning more, come January 5th to this information meeting. And then there's some follow-up training dates, the 13th and 14th and the 21st uh, for those who by God's grace, feel called to continue to step out and, and meet needs of foster care kids in our city. So lastly, and I don't know if I have the, I don't have it with, I didn't bring it up here, but Diane has ways to pray for adoption foster kids in our city. And she has it at the table on your way out. So we're going to close by singing. So if you don't mind standing with us, we're going to close through, through worship and on your way out, you can go by and see Diane and thank her and Fred for their commitment to our families and to the needs in our city. And then grab that prayer uh, guide from her on your way out. So let's close with prayer. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at Grace Church Frisco dot o-r-g